0: Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast heading on a midnight train. My name is Corey Hazelhurst and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. And also joining us with a love of subtext in American politics is our friend in New York, Patrick Cook. Hello, Patrick.
1: Hello, Corey and Steve. Happy middle of January. I don't know. I'm glad I'm still here. My country is still standing with its democratic functions. And I'll just uh, I'll go with that. It's still the same country it was in the beginning of the year before my birthday. I'll go with that, you know.
0: And it's still Steve's birthday. Maybe not when the episode comes out, but it's, it, it's almost like this is just one long party, socially distanced over Zoom, of course. So what has got lost, perhaps, in the in the news, in the talk of Donald Trump, in the talk of Joe Biden, is the Georgia Senate race. Democrats won both Georgia Senate races. What does that mean for the future of the Democratic Party?
1: it gives it a a roadmap for what works and what is the future of you know starting to to rebuild the state party i think that Stacey abrams and all the other organizers there have shown that when you go back to the original in terms of campaigning which is in on in-person campaigning knocking doors democrats win and they did it the biggest difference between what happened in the General election versus the runoff election was they knocked on doors. and But I also think it gives a roadmap of rebuilding state parties and showing how important it is to rebuild your state party, your state, state and local level uh, infrastructure along the way. And Democrats have been very good at top down campaigning and not bottom up, which is how the Republicans. It uh, helps you give a roadmap for still what's going to be, glad I'm not the Republicans, but still is going to be a tough rebuild for the Democrats. They made a lot of progress in. One, but there is a lot of work they need to do to be able to understand why voters are leaving their party and why working class people are voting Republican and voting Trump in general. I think it's huge that they learn learn those lessons that economic, the economic message is is uh, is what you need to run on.
2: The way that both Ossoff and Warnock. Around their campaigns um, was 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 very interesting in terms of their their overall messaging. I mean, correctly, an awful lot of the attention of um, the success around Georgia has has been about talking about um, Stacey Abrams and, and and the organizers that work with her. But there are other elements to this as well, which I think do deserve as, as equal an amount of, of of attention. So, for instance, both Warnock and Ossoff, neither of them really hid the the fact that they were they were they were they're more left wing than your average um, Georgian uh, or at least what people's perception of what an average Georgian would be they were going very hard in their messaging on economic matters they were very much kind of pushing much more kind of like expenditure and bills like in the in the dying days of the campaign the issue of those two thousand dollar stimulus uh two thousand dollar uh relief checks became something that uh, they were very much hammering both purdue and loffler on and despite all of this kind of focus of, of, of talking about left-wing kind of like expenditure and doing all of the things that you know traditionally um left-wing parties and left-wing individuals try and avoid talking about because you know you don't talk about the things you want to spend money on necessarily that much because that's how you get hit with the big debt bombshell ads and that didn't happen here it didn't seem to make as much of a difference and i think it just shows that there is a, a definite approach that can be taken for the democrats probably And if it can work in Georgia, there's no reason it can't work anywhere else, I feel, Um, where you just kind of focus on the issues, but you make sure it's issues that are going to be very favorable to you. So don't go running around talking about forming gun laws. Yeah, that's really important, but don't make that the focus of your campaigns Uh, and don't, as as kind of like left wing activists, spend all your time talking about these sorts of things, because then you're playing into the culture war and that's where the Republicans get riled up. It's a lot harder for for the Republicans to argue against policies which actually benefit their their constituents, um, such as, you know, $2,000 stimulus checks. They will try it and they will do it, but it it becomes a lot trickier for them overall to make a coherent, cogent case uh, against it without them sounding like they just don't care about their constituents. So if you can talk about these issues, bring it back to how it benefits the people you're running to represent then i think you've got a very good baseline to to be working from that can be rolled out across the entirety of the country that said this is in many ways quite basic stuff you'd think but it seems that this isn't necessarily how a lot of things have uh, have been done i mean even in in the immediate fallout after the um after the uh, after the the presidential election and the not great results that were happening down ballot. We had inter-party spats uh, happening with, like, the progressives, like AOC, uh, having a go at uh, people who'd lost their seats for for the way they'd been campaigning and, and things like that. So it's quite clear that there is not a standardized approach to a lot of these things uh to, to, to how to fight these elections actually out there, um, and clearly that is required. And I think. Um, the georgian results do give you that baseline you can then look to roll out and adapt to the different uh, districts or state or, or states across the country
1: so you head nail on head that it is really related to sticking to economic methods methods that are there yes it will be different across all the state but the one thing that georgia has taught you is investing in your state level infrastructure and investing in in off years and never get you know not like well we lost it i guess we'll just wait till the next election to see what happened it doesn't you don't change a state over just showing up in six months. saying, we're here. Go vote for us. It, it takes years and years of organizing to make it happen. But then you can't give up. Oh, we got it, so we can go another state now. Sustained organizing, which is what, which is what you know. Stacey Abrams continues to always, always. You know, anybody that listens, she'll tell them the sustained organizing sustained organizing and off years and funding for the organizers throughout a year, does it doesn't end just because we finished the election. You have to get back on it and you have to continue fighting if you want to continue progressive pass forward. I think that is on itself, something that can be brought to other states is just the the importance. Maybe some of the messaging will be different, but Stacey Abrams, you know, finally, I think I, I, now she's finally after yelling it for years, I think people are actually gonna listen to her about what she says you need to move forward, money, organizing in the infrastructure state level to continue to fight and die. that is huge on its own. Whether it sticks, I think it's more likely to happen with Jamie Harrison at the DNC and Biden as president. It, it, it seems to be right in what he what he is, uh, as an institutionalist is pretty big, but old fashioned campaigning is what wins election, not fancy digital, not fancy one, knocking doors, talking to people, understanding one, not poll tested message, be genuine listening and incorporating voters' minds into your decisions is huge. Can't believe I have to say that, but
0: yeah. Right, there's there's so much there to unpack, isn't there, I think. (laughs) Let's start with thinking about, say, Stacey Abrams in particular. The interesting thing is this is a 10-year project, isn't it? With Stacey Abrams working in Georgia, reaching out to marginalized groups who often were ignored for sort of electoral reasons. Uh, often because they maybe weren't registered or didn't take part in the democratic process. And so it's not just knocking doors, but it's knocking every door, making sure that people are registered to vote and and working with lots of community groups to make sure that people are registered. It's just such a a massive long term trend to, to, to build. If we're talking about though, so we've talked a lot about rebuilding states parties. I just wonder what that looks like on a on a sort of more practical level.
1: I think in particular, you're talking about, you're talking, it's depending on what state party, like the Florida Democratic Party is completely in shambles and is really ineffective, but there's state parties like uh, Georgia, Georgia state party is considered to be one of the better ones. But like, I think particularly it's like simply as effective, like getting them the money to hire organizers uh, to hire to hire uh, regional organizers that are there paid for one time, but are also I think longer would be to down to to local parties, so county and you know township parties or you know municipality ones that they have the money to be able to you know funding to be able to hold meetings with various interest groups, but it also as simple as like them being able to hire data analysis, being able to expand their, expand their staff to do, you know, digital organizers and on-field, you know, regional organizers. I think it's generally just allowing them to be put the best practices in there, building their data, building their databases, you know, outreach so that they know who where their voters are, town halls. I think it's like simple things like that, but also I think it also is... You know, finding the best talent for these jobs across the state ones, and having them stay instead sort of the go for a political consultant firm that they stay working for the state state party, and I think just modernizing state parties with the best with best strategies and and uh, training them and. and Uh, not losing and I think the other biggest thing is basically allowing them to keep at least some if not all of the staff that they have created during the election cycle temporary staff stays on and off years to continue what they've been doing I think that's more or less what we're talking about in terms of rebuilding organization is actually having full-time organizers not depending on volunteers
0: and do you think and do you think that the the money that has been raised as part of the runoff will go towards that so uh, I think it was in, so in November, in in the month before the runoffs. I think St- Stacey Abrams raised thirty-four million dollars in a month, which is mind-boggling. If anyone wants to give Birmingham Labour Party thirty-four million dollars for their election campaign, do do get in touch. Um, I'll just take
1: five hundred thousand if everybody's willing to get a little bit. Of money. <laughs> I'll take that.
0: But so, um, but I'm guessing there's a limit amount. You know, there are. Apologies to Mark and any of the Dems in the podcast, but there's probably a limited amount of leaflets you can actually put through someone's door on election day. Is a lot, does a lot of that kind of go to hiring organisers in those off years as well?
1: Yeah, which I think in the case of Fair Fight and the New Georgia Project, which were a lot of people that could, that the runoff elections once, those went right into their general funds. So that would allow them to not to keep their staff a lot high, at a higher rate. That maybe you know there's always a drop off after election in terms of fundraising. So like that is probably a huge one for them to keep in their organizers and to there's a solid amount of money that went to the Georgia Democratic Party, for example. Like the Biden campaign transferred 18 million dollars to Georgia Democratic Party, and that money it was used for or Expanding data and all of that—that that went towards organizers. But a lot of that money probably went to b- basic infrastructure that they continue to work because there's nothing. There's no poll like a poll on, uh, the, an election that you can learn for what you did wrong. And then three months, two and a half months later, you then have a chance to do it again. You're you know and invest in certain stuff that's going to help you in the future. That's huge. But yeah, money—the the, the raising of money that went to probably the Georgia Democratic Party and the non-candidate candidate one is probably going to be used. probably was a big inflow of money that could be used for organizers, for data, for building out their digital organizing that otherwise wouldn't be there that'd be helpful. Candidates don't always spend the money in an efficient way. PACs don't. But if you give it to a state, to a state party or to a to and you know an organization like Fair Fight, it's guaranteed to probably be used not on ads but on actually putting people on the grounds just in general. Or you could be um, Amy McGrath didn't give any money to Kent, to, to Kentucky Democratic Party. It raised 68 million dollars and would have had better off just lighting it on fire. You know, it all depends also on the candidate whether the candidate uh, transferred money to to the state parties. I know that Jamie Harrison did, and I think in the case of Warnock, he probably isn't going to transfer any money to the Democratic Party because he's got to run again in two years. Yeah. Y- you know, for him, fundraising never ends. Olshaw's probably going to fundraise for the parties, but he won't need it for a couple of years to have to st- staff up his camp, the campaign structure. So
0: I suppose Olshaw's in a six-year term, isn't he? Yeah. The thing that really strikes me about this is the sheer amount of turnout that there was. You actually had, I think, about 100,000 people who didn't vote in the presidential election and voted in the runoff, which is insane.
2: (laughs) Yeah. It doesn't make much sense until you realise that there's probably an awful lot of people who are going to have been democrats as, as we've seen with the actual result who probably didn't bother voting because it's georgia the democrats never win georgia what's the point in me voting and then suddenly they had the evidence that the democrats can r- win georgia and suddenly you have a reason to actually get off your ass and get down to the put to the uh, to the polling station because you now know that your vote can actually make a difference, especially when even though the Democrats won, it was still damn close. Georgia is going to be one of the most important states for the next couple of presidential terms uh, at, at minimum. I
1: think that also is it has people believing that Democrats can win in Georgia means that the, the, you have your turnout of Democrats is going to be higher instead of knowing, oh, Georgia, they're always going to win is win. And that's huge. And it also, what it shows you, and I think this is pretty amazing, Trump's not on the ballot, Republican, uh, Republican turnout drops higher than uh, deeper than Democrat Turner would, will change that. And I think, I think that's actually a really big thing in Georgia. It shows you that Georgia may have not been as close if Trump wasn't a candidate in the 2020 election that Biden could have won it by two free points cuz you take Trump out of it and, and you know produce just not Trump and Laffler's not Trump and you saw that the numbers dropped considerably so that that gives you hope that in 2022 in a midterm election where you know there's going to be less turnout in general, and Democrats are kind of still riding their high, and, and turnout machine might be strong that they're going to be able to you know do decently well in Georgia and a lot of swing states compared to Trump not being on the ballot for Republicans, similar to 2018.
2: Yeah. And, and I think the other thing there is that um, I think this problem might, might very well have been something we've discussed on the podcast before. Um, but there's been a, a switch in terms of the voting blocks of who who supports which party. And, you know, it used to be that you wouldn't expect um, the uh, Democratic base to come out at midterms because a lot of that base wasn't what uh, wasn't as... Uh, committed to turning out to vote regardless of, of, of what the election was. Um, that's because a lot of that base was more working class um, now it's it's switched around you know a lot of the the a lot of the working class class vote in places like georgia is rural and then, then there's gone republican whilst uh the um, suburbs where you've got more educated people who tend to be sticky in their voting patterns and will turn out regardless are now going democrat so when you've got that in 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 place as well you've got a a, a very strong case i think for um for the uh for the democrats not just holding uh a georgia in, in those midterms but potentially being able to make gains elsewhere elsewhere as well and that that actually is probably one of the other kind of big lessons as you said it's not just about oh when trump's not on the ballot the, the republicans don't turn out that's really useful information but it's also when trump's not on the ballot we still keep those suburban voters that's yeah. that's massive that is a genuine yeah. game changer
1: you've yeah. replaced hypotensory voters the, the GOP lost uh, solid high propensity voters, and it and it replaced them with uh, the Democrats. The problem the Democrats have always dealt with, which is low propensity voters, working class, and now those high propensity voters, particularly we we'll call them runoff runoff voters, are now. Leaning Democratic in Georgia, it's not the only state that that's going to be the case. It could you could see that in Florida is always an odd one, so don't you know you can't put Florida in, in anyone. But you could see that possibly being similar to what's happening in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan, Ohio not, but that's that's huge for the Democrats' tension in 2022. If that sticks, that they're getting the high for white collar voters who live in the same place know how they vote have the license have their you know voter id and stuff like that that's huge for democrats huge for democrats if it holds
0: nate silver's written something for 538 with the headline of that georgia was a disaster for republicans and it's hard to know where they go from here which feels to me a, a little bit of an over i suppose what seems to have really ha- sunk loeffler and purdue is there's a few different theories on there. one of them is that it was um donald trump saying that all elections were rigged therefore there's no point in bothering to voting so lots of people went all right i'm not going to bother then." you've then but you've also then got the fact that purdue and loveler were both being if not quite too tastic, definitely quite coup adjacent which maybe did put off a lot of republican suburban voters you probably also have so and, you, and the fact that actually they were both quite flawed candidates and the Democrats had two very effective candidates, although, as you say, not quite stereotypical Southern, you know, if I if I think of a stereotypical Southern politician, I think of Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton, neither Ossoff or Warnock are, are in that particular wheelhouse.
1: Jeff Sessions.
0: Uh, yeah, I was thinking Democrat politician, but yes. OK. Because um, obviously in 2012, I suppose, there was probably a similar sort of soul-searching. The Republicans said, well, we need to think about how we're going to win back voters from ethnic minorities. And, and obviously in 2012, they, they do this post-mortem, say they're going to have to be a bit more moderate, whatever that means. And then they don't necessarily let the most moderate Republican who was running in those 2016 primaries. Um, so I suppose there's a couple of questions out there. One of them is, in terms of the future direction of the Republican Party, um, do we think Nate Silver's over-egging it a bit? Is this, is, is Georgia really that much of a disaster for Republicans or is it, are there green shoots that they could look at, do you think?
1: Oh, I think Nate Silver tends to over-egg a lot of decent, decent stuff, but he's on the point where it is a disaster because, you know, if he's depending on what he sees in 20, what he saw in 2020 and kind of demographics for them, I think, I, I really don't think, you know, the, the democrats that george is going to be some kind of be always in play for democrats the democrats have a chance always to win the state majority the majority in the state but i think he's on the point where there that the drop in turnout the drop in turnout when trump's not on the ballot is kind of big because that shows you that most it's a matter of republicans are still going to favor favor trump i think the other thing that we as a is that there was a there was marked improvement in, among what should be Democratic-leaning demographics groups. So younger Black males have voted more in favor of, of Trump than they had they had done or uh, again has hispa- young hispanic males and some changes in terms of those demographics of uh, groups uh, of that favored trump may mean that they start might be picking up some of these groups in a slightly higher number which could be helpful or that was just a fluke because there was trump and it could be that they're still just a party of for lack of a term people that are proud to be white and that is a smallering and much smallering portion of of the electorate as as this party it, it continue this country continues to diversify but i think he's a little overarching i'd like to see what happens in i don't know like 2022 when it's a lower turnout midterm election where you have state house and state senate races in a georgia georgia and a governor's race and you have secretary of state let's see what happens when there is isn't the national all the powers of both national parties are down for are are not focused on one race. Well, let's see what it looks like there before we, before Nate Silver declares Georgia dead for Republicans. I'd like to see that first before. <laughs>
2: there is absolutely a potential for for Georgia to be an absolute disaster for the Republicans, um, but that's simply going to going to be because if they can't work out a way to win Georgia back then suddenly their path to uh, victory at the presidency all but vanishes in a lot of instances. They've, they've lost Arizona at the same time, like they're still failing to, 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 to flip Nevada. Very, very limited paths to them to actually get to the required number of electoral college votes. In, in that regard, it's absolutely had the potential to, to be disastrous. But I think uh, I agree with Pat in that a lot of this is really going to depend on what happens next. And how the republicans actually approach it because as you say like previously when obama got elected they went for a a report which said hey we need to be you know attract more of these sorts of voters more diverse voters um and then they completely ignored it a big part of that was because they had this insurgent movement in the form of the tea party which eventually Leads you down to the path of where we are currently, with with with, with getting you Trump as president and the uh, you know white nationalist insurrection uh, insurrectionists attacking the Capitol building. It's difficult to see how the Republicans are going to be able to thread the needle of we need to diversify our our electorate whilst also keeping the the, the Trump base infused and actually going to turn up and vote for people that aren't to Trump. I'm not sure how they can how they can do that at the same time. If they can do it, then wow, that will be very impressive. But I'm not sure it's actually possible. So I think it really boils down to them saying, "Okay, who do we want to actually be a party of?" Like, I, well, really, I think which either way they go, they run the potential of um, across the short to medium term becoming kind of irrelevant politically in that it will still make it impossible for them to win a lot of elections, potentially. The death of the GOP is largely overblown uh, in terms of rhetoric at the moment. They still have a chance for to be resuscitated. But I think it's a question of how long that takes. And I think there's two paths for them. One of which may not resuscitate them at all. Um, that's kind of doubling down on Trump and a lot of what they've been doing already. And the other is actually going. You know what? We need to modernize as a party. We need to get with the times, which will screw them in the short term for definite because they will almost. You, you're going to end up with third party runs of of people saying, you know, the Republicans aren't true conservatives anymore. All of that sort of stuff. But it will at least put them in a position where in ten maybe even maybe 20 years time, they can actually be legitimately contending again. But again, all of this revolves around, you know, all of our assumptions about what's what happened in in November and in January in Georgia, still holding true come the next set of major elections. So really 2022, that's when we need to be kind of looking very, very closely um, at these sorts of, uh, about what happens. Um, and uh, from there, we'll not only have a view of what the Republicans are doing, um, at least you'd think you'd, you'd have a view of that by then it's possible they might just drag their feet and not do anything but we'll be able to see how people react to the republican party in whatever form it exists
1: in uh on.
0: in that case we should probably end it there on agreement an agreement to ignore the next 21 months and work out what november 2022 tells us not sure how i feel about that um cut
1: through the noise And just look at the demographic shifts in states and that will tell you probably what will happen in some of these places.
0: (laughs) If you want to cut out the noise and hear more of the signal, you could back us on Patreon, couldn't you, Steve?
2: you could indeed you could head over to patreon.com slash not enough champagne and throw us a few quid every month which will gain you access to uh unique blog content and episodes that we record for our backers our champagnes as we call them uh over there um you gain early access to various bits and pieces of content that we produce as well uh and yeah it's 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 a fun little place we've got some various discussions that happen uh on on, on, on there so um
0: head over just uh give uh, give it a look and uh hopefully uh we'll see you there our website is notenoughchampagne.com our facebook page is facebook.com forward slash notenoughchampagne james cram designed our logo you can follow him on twitter at james cram dave depper compost our theme tune pookie good times our twitter handle is at no champagne pod mine is at paperback rioter mine's at acoustic radical at peacock 11